The sense of smell is often represented as the fifth sense and the least important, but my next guest, the great-great-granddaughter of a perfumer and soap maker, has come to realise it's anything but. At the very beginning of the COVID epidemic, way back in 2020, journalist and writer Paula Tataro got COVID and lost her sense of smell. And then, this is weird, she had the olfactory version of missing limb syndrome she started smelling things that weren't there. And the more that she and her husband, Robert Wainwright, thought and researched our sense of smell, they realised it was actually genuinely so fascinating, they wrote a book about it. On the Scent, Unlocking the Mysteries of Smell and How Its Loss Can Change Your World. Paula, thank you so much for joining us. I'm delighted to be with you. I actually uh, typed that introduction wrongly and I wrote Unlocking the Mustries of Smell and I realised that would have been a much better title. <laughs> I like that. I think that's very good. <laughs> how did you lose your sense of smell and, and tell us how it affected your life? Oh, goodness. It was March 27, 2020 and I think we were in the first four or five days of lockdown in London went to the bathroom, washed my hands, as we were told to do, and put this very fragrant um, hand lotion that I adore, an Australian one actually, and I realised I couldn't smell it. And to cut a long story short, I panicked, smelled everything I could find in the bathroom, could smell nothing, not even bleach. So I kind of realised at that point that it was, uh, you know, I, I'd, I'd lost the sense. I, it was almost as dramatic as turning the lights off. There was just nothing. Um, and, of course, I'd been covering um, the early days of COVID in Italy. I'd been travelling. I had walked Hadrian's Wall for my birthday from west to east of England in, in the kind of deep of winter and come home in a carriage from Newcastle to London in a shut-up carriage with people coughing and spluttering. And I kind of knew straight away that, I'd caught it somewhere. It had to be that. And uh, sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Um, from there on in, we started to hear more and more of this mysterious loss of smell, sudden loss of smell. Um, and so, I, yeah, that's how I embarked on this journey of trying to find out what the hell had happened to my nose. <laughs> now, apparently this is called anosmia, the loss of smell. Is that right, Hazo? That's exactly right. Well, I've had friends who've had this and generally it comes back, I mean, sort of six weeks or so, but that wasn't the case for you. No, and that's the thing that, you know, anosmia was known, obviously, to ENT surgeons. You know, some of us have had a cold and we had a muted sense of smell. The really big difference with anosmia and uh, the loss of smell with COVID is that it was sudden and it happened without congestion. So I, for example, I had a really bad cough, but nothing, nothing terrible, but I had no nasal congestion at all. And that's pretty much how it's occurred for most people with COVID. It literally turns on and turns off. Um, and it, with many people, unfortunately, it takes a lot longer than the six weeks that you, you know, you experience with sinus or, or, or a horrible cough or, sorry, a horrible cold. Mm. And, and then it developed, and this is the part I'd never heard, into this parosmia, um, which is a, 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 a imagining a sense of smell. Is that right? Have I got that right? 
Okay, well, what happened was that in sort of within three or four months of this huge first wave of the, the so-called Wuhan, the first wave of, of COVID that, that occurred in, in Europe, um, people started to report distortions. So they started to report that coffee smelled like, um, you know, dead bodies, that, that, that mm. nor smells that normally, um, you know, you would recognise as a food smell, particularly onion, garlic, was, you know, people were literally nauseated. They were sick. They could not bear these smells. And some people lost huge amounts of weight, couldn't eat, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the distortions are called parosmia. But then on top of that, and that's what happened to me, was that I got what they call phantosmia, which is where you literally hallucinate a smell. So you're smelling something without a source. Parosmia, with the distortion, there is a source. So it's onion frying or it might be the coffee machine or, you know, whatever, cabbage or, you know, courgettes or something cooking. But with phantosmia, you literally imagine the smell. And the only time we've sort of known that really is with people that um, – uh, quite often it's a warning sign of some people's migraines that they'll suddenly get a, a sort of a, a phantom smell and then they'll know that there's a migraine coming. But this certainly wasn't known with uh, with regeneration of, or, you know, with, with the healing of your nose after an infection like a cold or something. So this, it's very that, unusual. This sounds horrific. And and, and what, were you, um, what were your distortions and what were you imagining um, uh, that you were smelling? Well, this is very funny because, you know, um, this is something that the science took some time to understand. So in that first year, we didn't really know what was going on. Um, and I had a really strange one. So most people have um, fragrances fair to foul, <laughs> what philosophers in the book that people I'd interviewed talked about. I had the opposite. So I would take the dog for a walk, pick up dog poo, as we all must, in the bag, and I would smell sweet biscuits. Um, so anything terrible, normally terrible, bathroom smells, etc., etc. So I won't sort of horrify your readers, but I, <laughs> no, I had it's the too late. You already have. You already have. <laughs> I had the opposite. Whereas, so I, in some ways, I was lucky. You know, I've talked to many scientists and olfactory people, and I kind of call myself the, the Pollyanna of parosmia because I got a kind of better version. Whereas thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. In fact, a new British Medical Journal um, article came out just last uh, week. And there's an estimated 27 million people worldwide who are going through this period of parosmia, which we now know heralds the regeneration of, of the uh, of the part of the nose that that is destroyed and uh, and needs to regenerate after COVID. So it's pretty pretty awful. And some people, as I say, they lose lots of weight. They literally can't eat. Um, some people it's so bad that they can't go to work because colleagues warming stuff up in the microwave, they just can't bear it. It, it really is a, an awful thing and it's sort of taking its toll on the health systems. Um, certainly here, you know, it's, it's now part of NHS long COVID um, responses. So, I, I'm, I'm, I'm also fascinated to read that um, what is it like not to be able to smell yourself and, and what does that do to your sense of self? Do you know, I think, Ellen, that was one of the most fascinating um, interviews that I did for the book. So I, I interviewed a philosopher, um, Spanish. Um, she, she works, I think, in, from memory in Madrid. And she was born without smell. So she was congenitally anosmic. And this, this is, a, you know, a small percentage of people are born with either missing olfactory bulb or one that doesn't work. 
And we talked about what it's like to not be able to smell. And, and she said some things that I had never thought of. For example, if we're driving to the seaside, if we're going to the beach, we often will smell the soles or the brine. And we can't see the sea yet, but we, because the smell tells us it's there, our horizons are widened. So we know that beyond the horizon, there's something lovely. So it's the beach, right? Mm. Somebody who's never smelled, been able to smell or who goes through a period of that just doesn't have that sense of wide space. Conversely, she said to me, well, you know, if you're in the train and it's or a bus and it's stinking hot and, you know, people are a bit sort of smelly, um, you feel like the atmosphere is very close. You feel as if it's stuffy. You feel that there's less space around you. But again, if you can't smell, you don't have that at all. So there's all these sort of sensory things that we all take for granted. I know I did. Um, but that actually when you don't have a sense of smell, you're suddenly, you suddenly realise that um, you're missing something. I mean, I think we all know, um, you know, if we've been to the gym and we, we've gone back to work, we don't want to sort of we go and have a shower, we don't want to be smelly for our colleagues. But if you can't smell yourself, you, you have this sense of any unease or, or sense of you might be imposing on people but you can't tell. Um, you know, all of us who've had children, that kind of... Um, bonding with a newborn baby's head or even, as, you know, I, I missed my stinky dog's fur. There, you know, it, there's just so many things about life that we take for granted um, that are related to smell. And it's you really don't know until you've lost it just how important it really is. That's very interesting, that notion of um, if I shut my eyes, I know where my left hand is and I open my eyes and, and there it is. And your sense of smell tells you the environment you're in. I mean, you think of that as something that your eyes do or your ears do, but you don't think about being discombobulated or um, lost in a sense because you've lost a sense of smell, lost in a physical sense, in a geographic sense. Oh, that's so true. And, you know, I I realise that every single day when you go down and make a cup of tea in the kitchen, I, who doesn't open the milk bottle and sniff it before you pour it into your tea? That's telling you, it's signaling to you that it's okay. It's, it's actually a sentinel for health. You know, if you drink um, off milk, it's not good. The same with, you know, you might be th- sort of upstairs and you smell smoke. You can't see smoke, you can't see fire, but you have an immediate response that says, whoa, something's wrong. So it's, it's as well as geographic, as well as the sense of something being, you know, just around the corner or, or you know, that, that, that somebody's cooking bacon and eggs for you downstairs. Yes, you're absolutely right. There's this sort of sentinel um, thing that, that, that's a danger warning as well. Mm. So, and when you were smelling charcoal all the time, was it all the time, first of all? And, and, and was that confusion or just odd? No, it was awful, actually. Um, I, in, in retrospect, you know, I learned so much in this journey, talking to scientists and 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 interviewing for the book, and that that I think is what they call a smell lock. So that happened to me um, in a period when we were suddenly allowed to be outdoors with up to six six people, and we went to visit friends, and it was so exciting. But it was it was cold in London, and so we had a, a fire pit. And from that night of the fire pit, sitting around the fire pit, 
that smell of, you know, that campfire smell that you get in your hair, you know, yeah. it's really something that you carry in your clothes for days on end. Well, that, it just never left. It was there for months. And it was, it was particularly, yes, discombobulating because I would have to ask my husband, I'd have to ask Robert, my, my Allegra, my daughter, is there, you know, can you smell smoke? And they would then alert and go and check the house. And then, of course, it, in the end, we realized it was just, it was stuck in the, stuck in my nose and wouldn't wouldn't leave. <laughs> Luckily it did in the end. How long did you have that? Um, I would say that was a good probably, I don't know, eight or ten weeks. It was yeah, it was it was quite um it was haunting actually, because it, it just you know it's not there, but it's there. <laughs> if that makes sense. I, I mean, I could talk to you for another half hour about that. That 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 overwhelming smell somehow made, made its way way into your brain and got stuck there. I mean, it sort of raises the question, which you, which you're grappling with in the book, of how much do we actually know about how this works? Well, you know, when I embarked on this journey, I I guess I realised how little we did know. Um, you know, the sense of smell, it's sight and hearing have always had the, the, all the big money, you know, the big sort of research money, <laughs> pharmaceutical money, science money and, and olfactory much less. But I guess that's the silver lining of COVID because one of the first things that science had to do, and they, and they realised very quickly um, that these, this, you know, it was it was an epidemic of anosmia across the world. Um, so they poured attention into it, and um, we now, because of COVID, know much better of, of you know the, the the mechanisms by which you lose your sense of smell. And with COVID, it's this tiny little. Um, smaller than a stamp size area of, of uh, mucousy tissue up, right up the top of your nasal cavity. It's called the ep- nasal epithelium. And that is pretty much the equivalent of scaffolding. So it holds the neurons to get it, it, it basically holds them up. So COVID doesn't destroy the neurons or the receptors, which are the really important part that then send messages to your brain, it, it, it breaks down and, and attacks what holds them up. So if you can imagine I was smelling smoke because it was a bit like the keyboard of your uh, computer. You drop it on the floor, all the keys are there, but they're sending off messages in the wrong, in the wrong way because the keyboard itself is broken, if that makes sense, is that, if, if that analogy sort of explains it. And so effectively over a period of time you have to relearn and your brain has to relearn and clearly mine smelled smoke on that night and then decided that every smell that was coming into my nose was smoke. Um, And I had to literally relearn, um, you know, to put the QWERTY keyboard back into into place. And so does that work? Can Can you do smell training? Well, um, very interestingly, um, there was a, there's a the, the scientist who's known as the sort of the grandfather of olfaction. He's a German um, professor called Thomas Hummel. He did a lot of work with smell training in the last years, and um, but he's ne- he never had enough. Uh, patient numbers and lo- and and sort of long periods to be able to do it, but though that smell training uh, regime that he pioneered has now been used worldwide and been tested over a couple of years since COVID, you know, since this anosmia started with COVID. And yes, there is very good evidence-based um, material to show that 
um, you know, five or six minutes in the morning, five or six minutes at night with four familiar smells, sniffing them and really mindfully remembering the smell as well as even if you can't smell anything, just trying to bring the, the, the notion of rose or lemon eucalyptus or whatever it is that you're using to your mind really does help. Dog poo, it's a little bit... dog poo in the morning, <laughs> dog poo at yeah, night. I... This is disgusting. <laughs> really, it is disgusting. Could I tell you I didn't do the dog poo? I, I really don't need to do that anymore. <laughs> Are you back? Are you back on the dog poo's disgusting? Yeah, we got yes, that. sadly, I walked the right. dog just before talking to you and I can assure you <laughs> <laughs> that part is completely functional. <laughs> Carla, when this book came over the desk, um, there's often a concern when somebody has something like this happen and they write a book about it that it's much more interesting to them than it will be to the reader. But this is not the case. This gets more and more interesting the more you researched and the more the reader reads, the more interesting it gets. Tell us about the evolution of the sense of smell. Well, you know, there's so many things that I learned. I mean, I, you know, that I, I could do sort of a, a 10 things you might not know about smell and taste. I mean, I had no idea that the sense of smell was the first to develop. In other words, the first of the senses in single cell um, organisms, um, because ultimately a single cell amoeba um, will find its way to a food source through a form of sense of smell. So ultimately sight and hearing, all those things came you know, slowly over millions of years as, as different creatures and different organisms evolved. But in utero, it, the sense of smell is also the first to, very first to develop. So, um, you know, there's some really interesting science where mums, uh, pregnant mothers were fed um, anise. They loved, the, the, you know, food with an aniseed in it. And they then tested the newborn's response to aniseed, the, you know, within hours of birth. And the mum who had aniseed and loved it, the baby would turn towards the smell of aniseed in the first 24 hours of life with eyes shut. So it's a really, really powerful, powerful um uh, you know, sense. And as I say, so undervalued. We, um, you know, we have between six and 10 million olfactory neurons, which are the, you know, the specialist nerve cells that allow us to smell. Well, dogs and mice have as many, or have many more, sorry, but we can dis distinguish some one trillion scents. So, you know, we, people often talk about dogs being much better, but actually when, when human beings are trained, they are just as good, just not in all the kinds of smells, <laughs> if you like, the, the, the plethora of sort of, uh, tunes of smells, if I, if I can explain it that way. So why would that be? Because animals depend on their sense of smell um, more than that, more than we do, I would have thought. So are we superior to them? Well, we're not superior to them in the sense that, uh, in the sense of, of it's, its need for our survival, but it's pretty clear that throughout, you know, the evolution of, of the human being, it was extremely necessary. So uh, clearly, for example, I don't know whether you've ever interviewed a, a sommelier or, a, you know, a, a wine expert or or even perfumers. I mean, they have the most extraordinary ability to be able to identify um, the smell of a wine and then tell you what, uh, you know, 
what part of France it was, it was, or you know, of Australia it was grown in, what kind of earth it was grown in. They are able to to dig right down into the mole- almost to the molecular value of these of these volatile substances that we call smell. Um, for us, it's training. We can train up to be as good as dogs. Um, I guess most of us don't need to do that <laughs> in our jobs. <laughs> Try doing that with a cheaper beagle. Um, there's all sorts of things we could talk about. We're running out of smell. I love that at some point in our evolution, the reader will discover that we lost our ability to smell female ovulation. We could speculate about that, but we speculated so much about dog poo. For the listeners who may be <laughs> experiencing this, I'd, I'd give them a sense of hope. Tell us just briefly and finally about the recent research that you've uncovered uh, on losing a sense of smell or, or gaining a, a phantom sense of smell. Well, I think that's the joy of, of time now. So I'm actually, um, I've just finished a new chapter for the paperback version of the book here in the UK, February. And um, there is now published evidence, again, in the British Medical Journal and, and I think in Nature perhaps, where we now have two years. They've dug deep. They've done a meta-analysis of thousands and thousands of patient records. And where once upon a time you were told, if you don't get your sense back, sense of smell back within six months, you can pretty much say, goodbye to it. Well, that's not the case. Some people take up to two years and when we push out potentially in a year's time, we might find that people are still recovering into their third year. So those of you that haven't lost, haven't got your sense of smell back within six months, take heart, smell train, do that mindful thing every morning and every night and just trust that your body will do what it, it needs to do and, and it will come back. The amount of, the, the percentage of people that don't get it back is, they think, between 3 and 4%, which is still quite high and quite dramatic, but nothing like what we thought it could have been even a year ago. Mm. So... There is hope, lots of hope. <laughs> Fascinating. You went from fair to foul, some from foul to fair. Uh, no, you went the other way around. Oh, just fascinating. Thank you for sharing. It must have been a, a terrible thing to suffer through, actually. Carla, thank you so much for joining us. It was wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. That was Paula Totoro. Good night, doll. And she is the co-author with her husband, Robert Wainwright, of On The Scent, Unlocking the Mysteries of Smell and How Its Loss Can Change Your World. A wonderful book. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.